worship team as well. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. I'm curious, how many of you are really sad that 2020 has come to a close? No one? Yeah. We're all looking forward to a different year this year, aren't we? Well, indeed. Uh, we have finished one very difficult year. We're beginning a new year, so I thought it might be a good time for us to ask the question, are you more a starter or more a finisher? You ever thought about that? I'll just give you a very broad description of both. A starter, a starter are people who oftentimes have great ideas, they are creative, and they are innovative, and they are energized, and they become very enthusiastic as a project begins. However, uh, starters can struggle to stay engaged on that project. Their energy might dissipate, and they might get distracted and move on to another idea before that project is finished. On the other hand, finishers may not have the creativity uh, of a starter, but they have perseverance. And they keep going until that job is completed. They find motivation and energy in seeing a goal in sight, seeing it completed, and that extra joy of taking a little pen and checking off that on the to-do list. So I want you to think about your home for a moment, your garage, your, your shop, your, your closets and your storage, all right? And I want you to ask the question, are you a starter or are you a finisher? Now, if you're married, and if your marriage can survive brutal honesty, you might want to ask your spouse for a second opinion because chances are they might see things just a little bit differently than you do. So we're starting a new study today. It is in the book of Acts, and I have to tell you, I feel like a young boy on Christmas Day who was playing with the favorite toy that he had asked to get for months. It arrived on Christmas Eve, and now it's Christmas Day, and he is playing with that toy. That's how I feel about the book of Acts. I love this book. It is one of my all-time favorites, and I hope that through our study together, that it will inspire you. I mean, there's just some riveting, mind-boggling stories in this book. I also uh, want us to understand it and interpret it accurately because I realize that there are some who have uh, perhaps inappropriately applied it to situations and to lives. I want us to understand it, to interpret it correctly, and to apply it appropriately to our lives. So the title for the series comes from the words of Jesus that he spoke to the disciples that are recorded in Matthew 16 and verse 18. He said to them, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's just powerful, powerful word, is it not? The book of Acts is going to be the first installment of the fulfillment of those words, I will build my church. It's an incredibly powerful book for us to study because it's going to reveal how this fledgling movement of of Christ followers in uh, Acts 1, we're told, there are about 120 of them. And yet from that group of 120, 
within three years, that group had grown to the point that it had Christianized the pagan Roman Empire. Jesus truly is building his church. So let's begin by reading uh, Acts 1, verses 1 through 8. We'll put it on the screen. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had been given, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So just by way of introduction, in this opening passage, we have several different personal pronouns, me, my, and I. That's a reference to Luke, who is the well-defended author. He was a medical doctor who was a companion on Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. There are various words that are used in the book of Acts that are medical words, words that would not be part of a normal person's vocabulary. Since Luke was a doctor, the connection is obvious. <clears throat> What's interesting about Luke, however, is that he is a Gentile, and he is the only writer of the 27 books of the New Testament who is non-Jewish. And so he is the author, and he, uh, he, he speaks of a former book, which is a reference to the gospel that he wrote. Now, we're going to look at the introduction of Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin to see a little bit of the correlation between these two books. Here's what Luke, how Luke begins his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, we need to understand that Luke's gospel and the book of Acts are a two volume set. In his first book, the Gospel of Luke, he focuses upon the works of God's Son, Jesus. And in the book of Acts, he focuses upon the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. And so it is a two-volume set, and in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, there's that very interesting little word, this is the work that Jesus began. That little word began is going to be the link or the hinge that connects Luke and Acts. So uh, we have this man by the name of Theophilus. Uh, his name comes from two root words. Uh, theos is God and 
Philos meaning phileo or love. And so the idea, you put the two words together, and Theophilus means a lover of God. Now, he's a real person in the book, but there are others who have said that the, the term Theophilus, or the lover of God, is, is really a, a description of all people who are lovers of God in every language and every nation and at all times. So we want to focus today upon the work that Jesus began to do. And so we're going to make four statements about that today. Here's number one. First of all, the work that Jesus finished. There is some work that Jesus finished, and there are some several scriptures that speak of that. So that in John 17 and verse 4, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, and he says this, I glorified you on earth having accomplished or completed the work that you gave me to do. Now, he is praying this prior to his suffering later that evening, his crucifixion the next day. But already he is saying that he has completed the work that the Father gave him to do. And then in John 19 and verse 30, Jesus uh, is hanging from the cross. This is known as the sixth word he spoke from the cross, and he said, it is finished. Again, his work is finished. So there's a second reference. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, where the writer says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, boys and girls, what did he do? He sat down. Is that very significant? The posture, he sat down. Today, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He did not sit down until his work had been completed. So the posture, the significance of sitting is very, very significant. So his work is complete in three ways. First of all, it's complete regarding the sacrifice for sins. His death was a one-time sacrifice. Hebrews 9 refers to that. His death is never to be repeated. His death was sufficient to cover the sins of all people at all times in all places. He bore the sins of the entire world upon his shoulder. Never again will there be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. His work is complete in this sense. The plan of salvation is now complete. So in the Old Testament, the Jews were given this sacrificial system. And upon study of that sacrificial system, there's a reference to sacrifices and lambs and the shedding of blood and those sorts of things. The symbolism of the sacrificial system pointed forward to the cross. And those who had insight and understanding saw the significance of all of those elements, and they saw that it rep was representative of the death of Christ. Of course, they were looking forward then to the death of Jesus upon the cross. We, however, are looking back. And what had been, uh, uh, shall we say, just a, a seen through a cloud is now very, very clear. So they looked forward 
and we look back. The plan of salvation is now complete and it is clear. Thirdly, we should understand his work as saying that revelation is now complete. There is now no new revelation to be received because God's plan and God's purposes for the redemption of fallen mankind has been revealed. Now, it is true that there will be greater illumination of that. So to speak, we might say that there might be some skin that would be put on the bones. You think of the epistles of the New Testament, and even the Spirit speaks today. He illumines, but He does not reveal new truth. He just illumines existing truth that is already there. I, I heard this recently, uh, fascinating to me, that when Buddha was uh, on his uh, deathbed, he had some of his uh, loyal disciples around him. And of course, a as he is dying, they would want to hear from him some of his final words. What would he say to them? And so he reportedly said to them, strive without ceasing. That was his, his word of encouragement. That was the way to receive enlightenment. That was the way to continue to pursue salvation. It sounds like a pep talk, doesn't it? Strive without ceasing. That's what he said to his followers on his deathbed. Now, in contrast with what Buddha said, Jesus said, it's finished. It's finished. What a contrast. Do you not appreciate what Jesus did? We don't strive. We, don't, we never have to stop working. We don't have to do that. we need to do is respond to it. How beautiful it is. The finished, completed work of Jesus regarding salvation. Here's statement number two about the work of Jesus. It's found in verse two of Acts. Jesus did his work by the power of the Spirit. Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, mentions the work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. It begins uh, with the angels, or, or I mean, not angels, but, but with uh, the conception by the Holy Spirit. We have his childhood, the baptism by John, his temptation and his ministry. All of that was done under or through the power of the Spirit. And it reaches its, its uh, culmination in Acts 10 and verse 38, where Luke records Peter's sermon as saying this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So the Father anointed Jesus with power from the Holy Spirit. So we can safely say that what Jesus did when he was upon the earth it was the result of the indwelling, filling power of the Spirit of God. So that in verse 2 where it says, through the Spirit, 
this little phrase through the Spirit is going to become a chief theological thread that is woven through the entire book of Acts. We should understand uh, the work of the Holy Spirit as a three-act play. First of all, there was from Eden up to Bethlehem. Uh, this would have been the time uh, of the Spirit's work in the Old Testament. He was active and, and he was present. He would descend upon people and they would accomplish great things for the glory of God and for uh, the working out of his plan. But there was no guarantee that the Spirit would stay or remain upon an individual. Hence, David in Psalm 51, when he, it's the great psalm of his confession, he says, do not let your Holy Spirit depart from me. Because he, in the Old Testament, no one had the assurance that the Spirit of God would stay within them permanently. Sin could truly impact the presence of the Spirit of God in a person's life. David had seen that in King Saul. So that's Act 1. He was active, he was present, he was at work, but there was no guarantee that he would remain in a person's life. Second act is from Bethlehem to Pentecost. This would be uh, the, the role of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. So in the life of Jesus, we have, especially from Luke, this record of the Holy Spirit filling, indwelling, empowering, and, and living permanently within Jesus. That's Act 2. Act 3 becomes the experience of people from Pentecost until the second coming of Christ. This is our era. And so what's happening in Act 3 is that the Spirit who permanently indwelt Jesus in Act 2 now becomes the Spirit of God who lives within every believer today, His permanent abiding, empowering, and filling presence is available to every Christ follower today. And so that's Act 3. So this interlude now between his resurrection and the day of Pentecost was very important for Jesus. It, it is a time in which he was continually preparing the disciples for ministry. One of the things that's so evident in the book of Acts is that these disciples are men of great courage. Great contrast to what their behavior had been in the book of Acts. And so the question is, what was the difference in these disciples? Well, I think there's two answers to that. First of all, he showed himself alive to them through many convincing proofs very important part of his ministry to validate that he was indeed alive. And as a result of, of the convincing proofs, the disciples then were able to have great confidence that everything that Jesus had said about himself and about human nature was true. It was accurate and it could be trusted. Now, can you imagine what type of courage you and I would have if we knew that what we were saying was absolutely true. Wouldn't that give you confidence? It would. And so that was the first part uh, uh, of their courage. But they also needed the power of the Spirit. 
And that's why he says, you need to wait in Jerusalem until my spirit comes upon you. So the proofs and the power of the spirit transformed these men into greatly courageous disciples of Christ. So this also provided an opportunity for Jesus to speak to them about, in verse 4, the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a very, very important concept. It was the first message that Jesus preached, and it was his final message. So that scholars and theologians today are pretty much in agreement that the kingdom of God was the central message of Jesus Christ. However, <laughs> there's a lot of disagreement as to what he meant by the kingdom of God. So I have an acquaintance of mine who I went to seminary with years and years ago. His name is Scott McKnight. He's a New Testament scholar today. And he wrote a book uh, several years ago entitled Kingdom Conspiracy. And this is what it says in the jacket. According to Scott McKnight, kingdom is the biblical term most misused by Christians today. Think about that. The word kingdom is the most misunderstood word today. It has taken on meanings that are completely at odds with what the Bible says and has become a buzzword for both social justice and redemption. In Kingdom Conspiracy, McKnight offers a sizzling biblical corrective and a fiercely radical vision for the, whole, for the role of the local church in the kingdom of God. Now, in light of this focus upon the kingdom, I just want to take a, a moment here. In light of all that's happened in 2020 with the COVID pandemic, with the election in November, and what happened in Washington, D.C. this past week, I need to remind all of us that we are first and foremost kingdom people. Our greatest allegiance is to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. It goes far past and beyond whatever our political persuasion might be. God calls us to be kingdom citizens, to be passionate about the pursuit of His kingdom and to see the expansion of that kingdom. We want Jesus to reign as king in our lives, king in our relationship, king in our gatherings as a church. And we want to see Jesus reign as king over all the earth. That's our greatest passion, is it not? It must be if we're going to be known as citizens of the kingdom of God. So let's move on to number three. The work that Jesus begat. This is going to be the theme of not only this sermon, but the entire book. The work that Jesus, the Son of God, began continues in the work of believers who are filled with God, the Holy Spirit. That's the probably the shortest description I can give to you of that. But let me be a little bit more precise theologically. Here's what we would say. We would say that the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross has satisfied the wrath of God. It secured the forgiveness of sins for all people. 
his bodily resurrection declared him to be the Son of God with power, and his resurrection validates all of his works. Following his ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit, he came upon his followers with power so that now the Holy Spirit is going to apply apply the finished work of Christ upon every language, tribe, tongue, and people. And so that's what we mean theologically by what's happening in the book of Acts. And so statement number four, this work is going to continue through the Spirit living and empowering Christ's followers. In verse 5, there's a reference to the people being baptized in the Spirit. This is a term that will occur several times in the book of Acts as well as in Paul's writings. And let's be honest, uh, it can be a divisive term within Christianity, but it doesn't have to be. So in chapter 1 and verse 5, Luke uses this expression, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Back in Luke, the gospel that he wrote, he quotes Jesus as saying, in chapter 24, that you will be clothed with power from on high. A little different wording to the same event. And then in Acts 2 and verse 4, again, Luke uses another expression. He says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's interesting that he uses three different phrases to describe the one and the same event. That would tell us that we need to be very, very careful as we understand some of the wording and the expressions that are going to be used to understand this topic. What is also clear, however, is that uh, each of these expressions is used in the passive voice. You will be baptized. You will be clothed. You will be filled. Meaning that that, um, the Spirit of God descends and we become the recipient of, of that Holy Spirit. In other words, there's nothing that we can do apart from surrendering to him and inviting him in. Our spirit's experience is the result of us responding to what he wants to do within us. And so it starts with him and we give him permission or we would withhold permission from him to speak. And so very, very significant. What what Jesus began with his disciples is now going to continue through the Spirit in filling a whole nother generation of disciples. Uh, The year was 2012, and Trudy and I had taken a a tour uh, of Israel. First time I had gone there, I I don't know why I waited that long. But we are uh, in the northern region uh, of uh, Galilee, and we're right next to the Sea of Galilee. And there uh, on the west shores of the Sea of Galilee is a mountain called Mount Arbel. Got a picture of it on the screen. And so uh, it is a, uh, it's a tall mountain, and uh, it's a significant mountain because in the first century, it was on Mount Arbel that a number of rabbis would climb to the top, and there they would pray with and for their disciples. We can't say with any certainty, but there's a lot of consensus that in Mark 3, uh, when Jesus spent the entire evening in prayer on a mountain, 
And then the next day, calling 12 to be with him in his uninterrupted company, that it was on this very mountain. So um, we are there, and we're going to climb to the top of that mountain. So the next picture shows a little bit of, of that climb. It was a bit tricky and, uh, frankly, a little bit dangerous. Now, the good thing was this. There was a cemetery at the bottom of the mountain. So that should you slip and fall, you could just roll down to the bottom of the hill and you could be buried right there, uh, you know, right by the Sea of Galilee at the foot of Mount Arbel. So, I mean, it, it, it was a win-win, win-win. So, any the next picture just shows my good wife, uh, who is a real trooper, so proud of her as we're climbing up Mount Arbel. So, we got to the very top uh, of the mountain and we sit down with our tour guide. And they lead us in a devotional from Mark chapter 3. And so we come to the conclusion of that. He says, I want all of you to just take a few moments and just meditate upon the significance of this place. And so there I am on the top of this mountain trying to put myself into the first century disciples, sitting at the top of the mountain, and there's Jesus right there. And, you know, I'm getting more and more into that. And I'm just thinking about it. How wonderful it would have been to have been in the physical presence of our Lord. To hear him speak and to feel his touch. And I'm just finding myself deeply entering into the, the desire to have been one of those 12 disciples. When, when suddenly God just broke into that meditation time. And he said to me, Gene, do you realize that what those 12 disciples had with Jesus, I now have with you by virtue of the Holy Spirit living within me? Now, I had known that theologically for 40 years. But that moment, it became deeply personal to me that what those 12 men had in the company of Jesus, we now have it with the Spirit of God in us. In us. I, I cannot tell you what a difference it makes in a person's life. And so in the course of these next weeks together, we're going to have opportunity to explore and to understand better what that means to have the Holy Spirit living within us. His intimate, wonderful fellowship, filling his promise that he would never leave us, never forsake us. And through that intimate relationship, we have the potential to change the world, to be his witnesses here in Kokoda and to the ends of the earth. thank you for the words of Jesus who said to his disciples it is to your advantage that I go away for if I did not go away I would not send the Holy Spirit to you the comfort of the one who is with you and will be in you 
Lord, forgive us for the occasions in which we have failed to celebrate God living within us. Failure to appropriate and, and hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to us. Lord, as the songs have said today, we want to linger in your presence so that we would hear your voice, hear your Spirit speaking to us. Lord, we would say this as we begin this study. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. We pray in Jesus' name.